Welcome, and thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Matthews Podcast, a podcast highlighting commercial real estate news, topics, and trends from top professionals in the industry. I'm your host, Matthew Wallace. I have over a decade of commercial real estate experience transacting on over a billion dollars in deal volume on both the private and public side as a broker and a principal and across all major property types. Currently, I serve as a market leader at Matthews, supporting the expansion, development, and management of the brand into new markets. Today, we will be discussing the healthcare sector and the real estate strategies owners and particularly physicians should consider for their practice. We are joined by healthcare experts, Michael Moreno, Rahul Chajed, and Ryan Burke. Michael and Rahul both stand as leaders of the Matthews Healthcare Division. They have represented a multitude of clients ranging from physician groups, operators, institutions, private equity groups, developers, and private investors to meet their specific real estate goals. Ryan is a real estate investment specialist advising in the disposition and acquisition of healthcare properties in the Carolinas, Georgias, and all across the Southeast. Mike, Rahul, Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Now let's dive in. Thanks for having us, Matt. Thanks for having us, Matt. Absolutely. First topic. Healthcare is one of the relatively newer sectors that has piqued the interest of investors, both institutional and private. As experts in healthcare, let's start off with a quick overview of the medical sector and the trends in the space. Mike, let's start with you. What would you say really attracts investors to this space? So for, you know, from an investor standpoint, I think the biggest thing that attracts owners healthcare space is just the stickiness of the asset class. Throughout COVID, you had a lot of assets that didn't fare very well. I mean, whether it was general office or some retail properties or whatever it may be, and there really just was a flight for safety. I mean, you know, across the board when it comes to healthcare, most operators stayed open, you know, most operators were deemed essential and most groups fared pretty well. So if I'm an investor and, you know, for example, I may have owned a, you know, office building that didn't perform well and maybe the tenants couldn't pay my rent. If I'm buying a new asset, I want to focus on healthcare. I want to focus on something that stayed open, that's e-commerce proof, recession proof, COVID proof, whatever it may be. And that's really a huge driving force for the market overall. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Stability of cash flow is crucial in uh, investor demand, especially in this environment. So what is it particular about healthcare that really gives investors comfort that that cash flow is going to be there over yeah. one, two, five, seven years? That's a good question. I, I think to simplify, the biggest thing is if I'm looking at two different buildings and I'm looking, let's just, let's just use retail as an example. You know, I'm looking at a, a standard box retail building. In most situations, the retail tenant isn't going to put as much capital into the location as a comparable healthcare tenant. So if you look at a typical healthcare tenant, their build outs are much higher than retail and they have such more of an investment, you know, of an internal investment in the location that just provides more security for a future landlord. If I have a tenant that's just invested half a million million dollars in building in a surgery center location, I can get comfortable with the fact that, hey, if something happens here where maybe you know, maybe the business has a down year, the tenant's still going to be stuck at this location because they put a lot of money into the building. You raise another interesting point there. What what are the balance sheets of these tenants look like comparably uh, to, a, you know, make your mom and pop in retail uh, tenant? Yeah, so I mean, you know, there, there's a huge variation. That's a broad question. If you look at healthcare, there's a whole, whole variance of different size operators. So you can go from the top of the top and let's just say comparable to like a CBS if we're just talking about retail all the way down to the single unit operated dental clinic, or maybe the balance sheet is a couple hundred thousand dollars. For us, when we're marketing deals and we're selling healthcare deals, more than anything, performance is something that really stands out. 
So we're looking and saying, okay, well, this group may have $400,000 net worth, but if their EBITDA numbers or the EBITDA numbers are super solid and they have good coverage, like this is a good indication of, you know, not only this practice being your long-term, but any other future practice being able to come in here and support a healthy business and in an attractive rent. So that's a long way of asking your question, but there's just a huge variety. It's not as straightforward, as simple as if you're looking at a retail deal and saying, okay, well, you know, this, this operator has a thousand locations or this operator's best from great credit or whatever it may be. You really got to get into the weeds a little bit, understand what you're actually buying with healthcare and how the site's performing as a better indication of the security beyond just the credit. You touched on a little bit, whether it's a, a dental clinic or maybe a physician practice or a, a CVS at this point is even considered and blending the lines between retail and healthcare. What, what are the different like subsectors of healthcare that you guys are seeing and how, how do they differ and what's hot and why? So the way we categorize healthcare is three main food groups. So one, we've broken our division down into guys that are solely focused on MOB healthcare. When I say MOB, I'm talking about medical office buildings. So this is your standard, like when an investor thinks of healthcare, this is your standard healthcare asset. So surgery centers, specialty clinics, imaging centers, multi-tenant medical office buildings, things of that nature. But what's happened throughout COVID, there has been two other asset classes that's really picked up, that have really picked up steam. And those include dental and veterinary real estate. Those I would say are the three main food groups, dental and veterinary real estate, kind of similar to, you mentioned CBS. I would call it a bit more med tail. I don't love that term because it's, it's a bit broad, but they're going to be more retail located, central locations, high traffic counts, probably similar price points and similar rents to retail operators. And also most of those operators and those tenants in that space are going to be higher caliber, 50 to 1,000 unit operators. That's a bit more digestible for somebody who is, you know, maybe invested their whole life in retail to, to underwrite. Med tail. I like that. Did you come up with that? I, I, uh, I did it. <laughs> you trademark it right now. Yeah, I know, yeah. Let's speak a little bit about the demographics and how that's impacting MedTail or medical real estate. There's in, you know, you obviously have an aging baby boomer population and an undersupply of medical office buildings. And so naturally, if you just look at healthcare from a fundamental standpoint, there is a need for that type of asset class, right? As you have older people, you know, obviously there are going to be more elective surgeries, more hospital visits, more medical visits. And that'll fuel, you know, a higher amount of activity at the at these clinics, right? And so when you're looking at the end user, in which this case we're talking about the investor, right? What are the fundamentals they're looking at to size up a good opportunity? Is hey, look, is this practice sustainable? Are the are the fundamentals, you know, of the demographic growth and the aging population, are all these things supporting our thesis that this is going to be a long-term investment and a safe investment? And the answer across the board generally is yes, right? So you have, you know, an aging population, you have you know, obviously in America, one of the leading causes for, you know, of death is heart disease, you have kidney failures, right? And so a lot of these specialized clinics are coming out. Think of like a DaVita or Presenius, right? Where they treat people with end-stage renal disease. If you have end-stage renal disease, you have to get dialysized two to three times a week. And that is crucial to your, your health, right? And so, you know, when you have trends like that, that are moving forward in the U.S., um, you know, obviously healthcare is there to our healthcare buildings are there to, uh, you know, offer investors a, a good investment, you know, for for owners. You mentioned the uh, supply demand imbalance. Are, are we seeing the development pipelines very quickly fill up? And how how are the deliveries going to look over the next three, five, ten years? Yeah, I mean, they're massively behind. There's a massive amount of demand and a massive amount of undersupply. 
I think you bridge that with what's going on with the current economy, with inflation, the supply chain issues, rising costs. I think it's an impediment. It's only going to get in the way. I think the market will generally figure it out, but there is a a mismatched amount of demand and supply for medical office buildings. I mean, every statistic you look at, every graph, you know, it's it's almost alarming. It's, hey, look, we've got an aging population. We need more medical office buildings. And a lot of rules, regulations, rising costs are really preventing that demand to catch up with a needed supply. Sounds like yeah. uh, great for any owner of medical. Right yeah, now. absolutely. It is, it is great for owners. And there's another thing, too. I mean, there's several states throughout the country where they have certificate of need laws. Right. And so when an investor is looking at a newly developed medical building, let's just say, you know, and you're in a market like Washington where there's certificate of need laws. Right. If you buy a building that was just recently constructed, you don't have the same fears as maybe if you bought a KFC building or a Chipotle or a CVS where you're worried about, hey, look, this tenant could just move down the street or they could move across the street or relocate. You know, it takes like Michael had said earlier, a lot of upfront capital to build a, a facility like that. And it is a, a long, arduous process to get certified to build a brand new clinic. Uh, so just kind of to your point earlier, that's what makes it uh, a more of a sticky asset class. And just to piggyback off Roll's comment and specifically to the supply chain, that is affecting and that supply chain does have real time implications for healthcare development. I mean, we have certain clients now that they're building deals in the Southeast, Florida specifically, and they're looking like a thousand dollars a foot for costs for a built out medical building. So if you're if you're building something a thousand a foot, I mean, what do you need to charge your 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 tenant to to you know make a profit and, and cover your costs, right? So you know, for us, it's about keeping cap rates as low as possible so the rents can be a little bit lower and developers can still get their spread. But yeah, I mean, costs are super high and that's affecting everything across the board from housing development to medical development. You touched on uh, another aspect that I wanted to talk about, regional differences. Florida, clearly a very popular retirement destination. Where, what pockets of the country are you guys seeing the, the most action? Where, where is it really blowing up uh, from a development standpoint and also just a sales transaction standpoint? Yeah. I mean, a majority of the transactions we do are in the South, uh, the Southeast, the central U S you are seeing a lot of demand and activity picking up in those markets. I would say Florida is definitely on the rise. You have markets like Atlanta, Miami, Austin, you know, Denver's doing really well. And so healthcare just across the country is booming, right? I don't think it's you know isolated to one market. To answer your question, more of the velocity we're seeing though and that we're involved with uh, is definitely in the Southeast. And Ryan could touch on that a little more. Ryan does a lot of work selling Georgia medical office buildings on the team. And Atlanta has by far been one of our, one of our most active markets internally. What, right. what are the transaction volumes look like, Ryan? What do we, what do you expect? What, how was 2021 and what do you expect for 2022? 2021 was incredibly active throughout Georgia, Atlanta, even some very smaller towns throughout that state. We did a lot of a lot of transactions, a lot of sale leasebacks and a lot of that older generation kind of selling out and the newer generation coming in. And there is a, a big shift in that because of that transaction. And going back to the, the former subject, uh, there's a lot of spaces moving into those vacant retail suites. You know, it is expensive and a long delay to build out that new property. So they're moving into these vacant suites that are more accessible and really sought after by this new generation of people seeking healthcare. But primarily in Georgia, a lot in South Carolina, as well as North Carolina, definitely a lot of activity last year and off to a great start this year. And even with these delays in development and costs, uh, we're still seeing a fair amount of growth and development for new sites for a lot of operators.
Right, right. And and the, and the layer on top of that, you know, in addition to what Michael said and what Ryan said, investors slash developers are looking to get creative, right? It isn't that ground up development is the only option. You are seeing a ton of adaptive reuse buildings come into play. You're seeing a lot of office to meta office conversion because there needs to be some sort of a, a solution for these rising costs and, uh, you know, just extensive permitting processes and, and lengthy uh, uh, approval processes that, that developers have to go through to, to build these buildings. All right. Brings me right into my second topic. Ryan mentioned CLE SPACs and mm-hmm. Rahul is talking about financing healthcare deals. CLE SPACs have become very popular, uh, both in industrial and healthcare. Why don't we start with the basics and then we'll kind of dive into how this is affecting the healthcare market specifically. But what is a sale leaseback? So a sale leaseback is essentially a way to unlock capital out of a building you own. And what's really unique about healthcare versus maybe retail or some of these other asset classes is a majority of the buildings are owned by the providers that operate out of those buildings, right? That provide care out of those buildings. And so a majority of the transactions you're going to see in this space are sale leasebacks, right? So what that is, it's a transaction in which you sell the real estate to an outside investor and sign up a long-term lease with that buyer, right? And the reason you do that is because you're able to pull out this capital that was otherwise just sitting idle into the building and reinvest those proceeds into maybe something that'll return you more dollars instead of it sitting in the building, right? So doctors primarily, right? What is their primary objective is to provide care. They're running a practice. Obviously that practice has to do well financially. They're not medical real estate owners. So a lot of the times the conversation is, hey, what is the opportunity cost of you owning the building? You're primarily a doctor that wants to expand. You want to expand care. You want to enhance your practice, right? Why don't you take that capital and put it back into the practice, use it to fund more growth, you know, or do whatever it is that you feel is going to be beneficial to that practice and beneficial for you financially, right? And so really what it is, it's just an alternative financing tool where you're able to unlock this equity because a lease just brings so much value and an investor is willing to pay you, especially in this market, a premium for a rental property that is classified as medical. So if, if I'm a doctor, I have a robust practice and I'm trying to unlock this value, what should I be on the lookout for if I'm considering signing this long-term lease? And how do you come to that balance between the new landlord and the doctor on a on a rent that's appropriate? Like how, yeah. how do you guys how do you guys work the the negotiation between both of those? And how does that maximize value for both sides? Yeah, that's a really good question. I and mean, it's in something that we have conversations with our clients all the time because you know, if I'm somebody who's committed to selling my practice or selling, excuse me, selling my real estate, I mean, let's say, you know, my practice is doing really well. So I look at it and say, well, if the, the value that a buyer is allocating to my building is solely based off the rent, then why don't I just put the rent as high as, as possible, right? Let's put this at $100 a foot, a foot and sell this for, you know, $20 million. So that's where we come in. The, the, the market, obviously, from a buyer perspective, doesn't uh, take lightly a deal with juiced rents. I mean, obviously, if, if this is a long-term investment strategy for an operator, you have to look at it and say, okay, well, yeah, maybe I pay $100 a foot right now and I get $20 million, but then I'm actually paying $100 a foot in rent for the next 10, 15 or 20 years. So you, we never want to have any run structure affect the viability of the practice long term because at the end of the day, you know, we're not coming in to sell these buildings and, you know, sell them to owners and, and have these sites close shop in a couple of years. Like we want to structure the deal that's tenant friendly and landlord friendly and make sure this asset's a good long term vehicle for both parties. That includes providing, you know, market rent analyses, um, understanding where the market is, and also comparing the market rent to what the actual practice can afford. Because, I mean, if a situation where market rent's 25 bucks a foot, but the practice can only afford 15 based off the revenue that's putting off, 
we're going to recommend the seller, you know, choose that low rent and be a bit more conservative in, in our numbers. Mm -hmm. And to, to build on that, Matt, is we really take an advisory role when we're when we're you know advising on a sale lease back, right? It's not just about the transaction ahead of you. It's hey, look, you know, obviously you want to maximize the proceeds, put the seller in the best position to extract as many dollars as possible out of the building, but you also want to be thinking long term and downfield. You know, there is a ton of consolidation going on in the healthcare space, MA activity. Almost every day you have a, you know, a, a dermatology practice or a cardiology practice getting bought out by a private equity company or a health system, right? And so another main thing we do is we advise owners on signing a, uh, a lease that won't bite them kind of in the, in the behind in three, four, five years, right? Because a lot of these companies, a private equity company or a health system, they're going to come in and buy the practice and they're going to assume the lease. And so you never want to be in a position where they're coming in and having to assume a lease that's, you know, 20, 30, 40% above market, right? Because ultimately it's going to hurt their business value at the end of the day for having that high rent. And so we take a full holistic approach thinking about, hey, look, how do we maximize dollars today, but also put you in the best position possible down the line to set yourself up for a, a lucrative exit? That's why owners need experts like you guys to help you know, hold their hands to the process. It sounds pretty complex. There's a lot of issues that you guys are bringing up. Are there any other strategies to selling a practice or the real estate underneath? Well, I think we kind of talk about the benefits of, of doing so. And I think there's benefits on both sides of the equation. Like I think it's, it's a bit more straightforward on the buyer side. You know, if I'm a buyer and I'm buying a building and I want to operate or I want to buy something that has a lot of security, the cool thing about healthcare is, is most of the operators that are doing sale leasebacks have already been practicing at these locations for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. So there's already established market for these practices long term versus, I mean, some other comparable asset classes where you have groups that you know, just buy a building and just do a sale lease back, you know, a year later. That actual business model isn't as firmed and short out as a comparable healthcare practice. So from a buyer standpoint, there's a ton of benefits. From a seller standpoint, we've touched on some of them, but, you know, beyond the ability to control, to control, you know, what the deal looks like, you know, you're getting full market value, you're not getting appraised value. One thing that a lot of physicians specifically should think about is the sale lease back tool was a great way to alleviate potential concerns that may come up with recruiting new physicians and new doctors to a practice. So, and, and this is something a lot of groups may not think about, but so the traditional model for physician recruitment is, you know, you have a group of guys, they start a practice, they buy a building, they, you know, they all are, are owners in the practice in real estate. And then guys come out of college and they want to join a practice. So the group of physicians will say, hey, buy into the practice. It's going to be $150,000. You'll be owner of the real estate and the practice and we'll you know, all be partners in this whole thing. But what's happened over the past couple of years or, you know, the past 10, 20 years is the cost of education has gotten very expensive. So you have doctors are coming out of college, coming out of medical school, and they have, I mean, multiple six figures worth of debt. So if they're going in there and they want to join a practice, they can't buy into the practice, right? They just don't have the money to do so. So then they have to come on as a, you know, quote unquote employee of the practice. But if I'm a physician and I'm putting in my hours every single day and I'm driving revenue at the location and my landlords are also my partners that are benefiting from my revenue, that can create some conflict. And that can get in the way of not only growing the practice, but again, recruiting physicians, you know, as you continue to grow. So what we bring to the table is that his, you know, hey, let, let's get this real estate out of the equation. Let's sell the real estate. All the owners that currently own the real estate will get a part of that share. And then moving forward, let's bring a, you know, uh, an unbiased third party to own the real estate. You guys will pay rent as a tenant. You'll still have you'll still have control over the location, but you, nothing's going to get in the way of you guys recruiting patients and growing your practice. So, I mean, to simplify it, 
It's about taking things off the table that may get in the way of a group growing and really just focusing on what their core business is, which is you know serving patients and doing it to the best of their ability. Wow, I've never I never even thought about that as a recruitment tool. That's a fantastic point. Now we can't go an entire podcast without talking about COVID. So mm-hmm. what was healthcare the environment like before COVID, during, and then now as we're emerging from COVID, what's the runway look like going forward? It's a, a great topic, Matt. So as Michael had mentioned in the beginning, the stickiness of the tenant and the absolute necessity for that type of care provided in the community. And actually recently we had released an article about telehealth and how that affects medical office space. There was a huge explosion in the usage of telehealth during COVID because of the inability, well, not not really the inability, but the, the concern about being closer to people in an office. So that Although its usage exploded probably 38 times in some scenarios, there's still always the need to go into the office and see the doctor for a physical you know, inspection or operation or what have you. So definitely a, a increase in that, but then also just luckily through COVID, there was a consistency in medical uh, office buildings rather than a huge dip like other product types. And then also coming out of it, it's just, remaining resilient. So although there wasn't necessarily a large increase, there was a consistency, which as mentioned compared to other product types is is quite a benefit. Um, But again, going back to that that telehealth and and also just the the reach that providers were able to get through that has also sort of influenced the way medical office space has dispersed sort of away from the main campus like the traditional hospital and now moving more into that uh, medtail type that we were uh, talking about earlier. Right. And and to add to that, in terms of activity, COVID, if there was any sort of silver lining, it it enhanced velocity and activity in this space. Prior to COVID, Michael and I could tell you our you know business and our pipeline were, were pretty much at record levels. You know, obviously, there was a six to eight week drop and a pause initially where everyone was kind of wondering, hey, what direction are we going to go down? How's this virus going to expand? You know, just what's going to happen overall? There was a lot of there's just a lot of mystery around it, right? And, you know, fast forward two years later, that pipeline has doubled and it's a result of obviously growing our team and doing well and and staying focused on what we do, but it's also just a result of investor sentiment, right? Investor sentiment is reshifting, I would say, from traditional brick and mortar, more industries that are susceptible to COVID, more in a healthcare or industrial. And so just from that, people saying, hey, look, what is the one thing that people needed during tough times? It was healthcare. And right. And so that's propped up healthcare real estate to be uh, more of a, a sought after and well recognized uh, asset class. And the one thing I will say is during COVID, you know, a lot of these surgery centers, elective surgeries were paused, right? Because mo- a majority of the focus was allocating resources, time, and efforts to treating COVID, right? And so a lot of these surgery centers had paused elective surgeries. And so there, there was just this pent up demand that was building, a latent demand that was building. And as soon as elective surgeries resumed, the demand just went through the roof, right? And so you saw a lot of these surgery centers or these specialized practices, you know, doing much better financially coming out of COVID as well. And just to triple down and how that affected pricing, I mean, pricing increased exponentially through this time. You know, the, you know, I think a good indication of this is, you know, if we're selling a deal right now and we looked at that deal, let's just say two, three years ago, we're probably going to have a 50 to 75 basis points 
delta between the two markets. If you look at dental real estate specifically as an example, there's probably been 100 basis points compression in cap rates, and that just has to do with the demand out there for buyers looking to buy these types of deals. All right, last topic. I think we're just going to wrap this up here. What are the biggest takeaways that you guys think physicians should consider when selling their real estate? And are there any parting words of advice for investors looking to be more active in the space? So to, I'll answer the first question. So to talk about physicians. So if, if I'm a physician right now, I think I really have to think about this. It may not make sense for everybody to sell their building. You know, not everybody's a seller. Not everybody should sell. And I've had many situations where we're talking to a client and, and, you know, we value the property and we're like, hey, you know, uh, Mr. or Mrs. You know, doctor, it doesn't make sense for you to sell this building. Let, let's hold on to this. But the market is, has shifted so quickly and pricing has gotten so aggressive. And there's so many external factors that are affecting these real estate investments that in many situations are sizable amounts of these physicians portfolios that it just doesn't make sense to not at least take a look at the numbers. You should understand what your, you know, your nest egg looks like and how has that grown? How has that decreased in value? How has how that maintained its value? And talk with us and we can figure out creative ways to just maximize your portfolio long term. Whether it's selling this building, holding this, holding the property, exchanging the property, making sure, like Rahul mentioned earlier, making sure that in the leases that you're structuring are are in line with your goals long term, i.e. a practice sale, and just don't sit on it. Don't sit on it expecting that things are going to work out. you got to stay ahead of the curve. you got to make sure you're educated on your asset. A lot of the work I've done with sale leasebacks specifically have been with older physicians looking to weigh, looking for a way to capitalize as an exit strategy. And on the flip side of that, I talk to a lot of younger operators that say, no, we'll, we'll deal with it later. We have so much time. Don't worry about it now. No, we don't need to know all that. And then when we work with some older physicians looking to retire, they've lost a tremendous amount of value that they could have realized years before if they had a plan in place, whether it was through a sale leaseback or if they had sold their practice years before and were put into a lease that's really negatively affected the value of the real estate. So there's been, like I said, many scenarios where there could have been a substantial difference in value that an operator could have achieved by working with someone earlier on and having an energy strategy far, far ahead before retirement. Yeah, and going in line with that theme of thinking long-term, parting words on my end is you have rates that are going up, right? You're in an inflationary environment. The Fed just raised the federal funds rate by 25 basis points just you know this week. That's the first time since 2018. Right, right. And they've signaled six more rate hikes coming this year. And so for any physician that's working out a long-term strategy, it's imperative to think about what am I doing to put myself in the best position financially? And so obviously you have inflation. I don't think anyone thinks it's transitory at this point, right? It's here to stay. And uh, I think it's much higher than you know the 7.9% that has been reported. And so the one thing to think about is rising costs, right? Rising costs of healthcare, rising costs of product, devices, whatever it is. And so think about the opportunity costs, as I had mentioned earlier, right? Not just of your real estate value decaying because you're not taking advantage of a low interest rate market, but also think about the rising costs of healthcare, right? And your practice and running your practice. Maybe it's good to liquidate the, the facility today and put those dollars to better use or build up a war chest or savings to be able to fund any sort of rising costs or unforeseen expenses. Hard to find a downside in this product type. You're, you're telling me it's recession resistant. We've got a a demographic tailwind. We've got strong credit tenants that are heavily invested in the building the buildings themselves. So it sounds like a, almost like the perfect product type to be investing in.
It is, but just to throw a disclaimer here, I mean, if you're an investor, like, like, yes, it is a great product type and there's, there's a lot of benefits of owning it, but do your, still do your due diligence. Make sure you're working with somebody that understands the product type. Just because your neighbor has a real estate license, they're probably not the best person to represent you in, in buying a medical office building. Make sure you're working with somebody that knows the asset class, knows how to look under their hood, and knows what to look for when they're looking under that hood. That's really important. It's not a as straightforward as an asset as some other asset classes. So make sure you're doing your due diligence and working with somebody that understands the space. Expertise is crucial. It's everything. All right. Well, Rahul, Mike, Ryan, I appreciate you guys taking the time from your busy schedules to help uh, educate our listeners about the healthcare sector. Thank you all for joining us today and sharing your insights on such important topic. Uh, Any excuse to spend some time with you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Matt. Uh, Take care and everyone be sure to tune in next time. Thank you.